Hello, Maternal Health 911. What's your emergency? Hi, I'm Dr. Jill Baker. I'm a wife, a mother, a community health scholar, an executive director, and a fertility coach. More than 12 years ago, I was on my own infertility journey. Since then, I've made it my personal mission to help anyone who is on their own journey to become a parent, as well as shed light on infertility and maternal health experiences of BIPOC women and couples. Now, let's begin this week's episode of Maternal Health 911. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this very special episode of Maternal Health 911. Today, we will be talking about maternal vaccines and disparities with vaccines among pregnant women. And I'm very blessed to have today my very dear friend and colleague, the brilliant and amazing Dr. Annette Reagan. Dr. Reagan is a perinatal and pediatric infectious disease epidemiologist with over 16 years of experience in leading epidemiological research and public health practice. She completed an MPH in epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health, Emory University in 2006 in Georgia, and a PhD in infectious diseases at the University of Western Australia in 2016. She has previously worked as an epidemiologist for state and federal public health agencies, including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC for short. Something else we have in common, because I worked on a CDC project, too. I don't think we knew that. (laughs) But during Dr. Reagan's time at CDC, she coordinated national surveillance activities and had the opportunity to serve in emergency response operations, including the response to the 2009 influenza AH1N1 pandemic. Oh, my gosh, that was such a crazy, that was a crazy time. That was a crazy time in public health. But we'll talk, we can talk more about that later. I'm just getting a flashback. So after Dr. Reagan left the CDC in 2011, she spent seven years living in Australia. Oh my gosh, I'm jealous. Working for the state health department in Western Australia. And during her time there, she implemented several communicable disease prevention and surveillance programs, including the development of novel SMS-based surveillance tools for monitoring vaccine safety during pregnancy and emerging infectious disease threats such as the Ebola virus. Since returning to the U.S. in 2018, she has been faculty at the Texas A&M University School of Public Health, where she lectured on epidemiologic methods, infectious disease epidemiology, and reproductive health and served as the Deputy Director of the Maternal and Child Health Program. She is currently tenure-track faculty at the University of San Francisco in the School of Nursing and Health Professions. Her research program aims to support and promote maternal and child health, including topics of which we're going to talk about today, maternal vaccines given specifically during pregnancy, perinatal infection, birth spacing, and vaping and tobacco use during pregnancy. She currently serves as a PI on several NIH awards to evaluate the uptake, safety, and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines during pregnancy and to identify and address barriers to adolescent COVID-19 vaccination. Her research has been, yes, listen to this, published in over 100 peer-reviewed papers in journals such as the Lancet Global Health, Lancet Infectious Diseases, JAMA, BMJ, American Journal of Epidemiology and Obstetric Journal. So people, for those of you who are not in academia, all I have, the translation is these are all big time journals. <laughs> and I'm like, how did you do this? Just so like in awe. In addition to her research and teaching, Annette serves on several global committees to improve global vaccine safety surveillance with a special focus on vaccines administered during pregnancy. 
And lastly, in her personal life, she spends as much time as possible swimming. Oh, yeah. Hiking and nature walking with her husband and her two-year-old son, who is a pandemic baby. There are lots of those. <laughs> Not here, but lots of those everywhere. <laughs> Without further ado, everyone, let's welcome Dr. Reagan to the show, to Maternal Health 911. Thank you. Hi, it's nice to be here. I'm blushing with such a nice intro. Were you at the CDC when you worked there? Yes, so I... It was my first job post MPH, post graduation. I don't know how I got so lucky, but yeah, I was. I started off as a contractor and then moved into a full time position with them as a epidemiologist in the Office of Smoking and Health. So that was a really, and then for some reason I left. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why. How long were you there in total? Five years. I was at CDC for five years. Wow. Wow. I, so I worked on a project with the CDC. I worked on the dissemination of, of the sister-to-sister intervention, which is the HIV intervention, prevention intervention. That's Dr. Loretta Jamat. Shout out to Dr. Loretta Jamat. So we did, we had to go to the CDC to have meetings with the project officers who were very involved. So I've been at the, C- the building, awesome building, a <laughs> big building. It is. It's just a pain to get into, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe all the stuff that we had to go through security wise. Security is important. <laughs> yeah. To get in the building. I was surprised about that. I was like, okay. Well, I worked at the Chambly campus, uh, which I don't think exists anymore, but oh, we were wow. right next to FEMA. So it was okay. like super security. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. All right. So you were in, okay. So you were in Georgia. Okay. So Australia. Okay. So you have to tell me where were you in Australia when you were in school? Yeah. So I met my husband in Atlanta and then we decided, oof, let's like, let's just move somewhere fun. <laughs> and we ended Why up in Perth, Australia? which is, yeah, the capital of Western Australia. My husband's in oil and gas and there was, there's a lot of, there were a lot of oil and gas opportunities there. So he had a a job he liked and I landed with the Department of Health there in Western Australia. And it was a great, I miss Australia almost every day. It's a wonderful place, beautiful people, beautiful ocean, beautiful land. So I was able to go to Australia when my kids, the twins were four. So let's say they're going to be 12. So it's eight years ago. And it was for an HIV, it was for like a big HIV conference. So I got to be there for a week. But I was in Melbourne. I was in Melbourne for a week. Yeah. But yeah, Melbourne's really nice. Great coffee. I, I a lot loved of it. But I loved it. I loved it. Hold on it. a minute. Hold on a minute. You took two four-year-olds on a plane to a No. House? They did not go. Oh, <laughs> I went oh. by myself. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm about to give you an award. Oh, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I can't even get my... He turned three last week and I have a three-year-old now. Oh um, my God. But I can't even get him to the East Coast of the United States, let alone to another continent. Oh, yeah, no. So I was that would have. Say, my husband let me go. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I, when am I going to get a chance to go to Australia? And did you love it? Loved it. Yeah. The people were just amazing. The food was amazing. It's clean. It's an awesome spot. Yeah. 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 And, and I think professionally, it's also, there's some really great. Like they have some fantastic public health and great surveillance systems. There's a lot of people that just really quickly roll up their sleeves to make things happen. And in public health emergencies, scratch things together like incredibly quickly. So it's a, it's a great place to work in public health as well. Yeah, I was very impressed. They had a lot of, we took the train and the bus and there were advertise, advertisements everywhere. I was like, oh, wow, that's different. There were like, Condom promotion in the train. Yeah. Very progressive. I was like, okay. I, I was, I worked, so I was in the communicable disease section, which you would think encompassed. Yeah, we worked, I was mostly with vaccines and I worked right next door to the sexual health unit. And I was always super impressed with their campaigns, like really pushing the envelope. Like, yeah, things that, things that I don't think you would see in the in the US, right. you, would, you would have public outcry with how right but they were what they were fantastic they really appeal like spoke to younger 
the, the target audience that you really want to hit. With, right. For uh, HIV, STD pre- prevention for and HIV, HIV and STDs. Mm-hmm, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's okay. So you got to live. I would definitely live there. I loved it. So I get it. Highly recommend, but really hard if you want to bring the kids back and forth, yeah, like young yeah, kids back right. and forth to visit grandparents. Because that's that it's a brutal trip. It's that a brutal twenty-four trip. hour, well, flight from DC from LA. You had to fly from Philly to LA, LA to Melbourne, twenty-four hours. Yeah. Now imagine if you lived in Perth, and after you get to Melbourne, you're not done yet. You got another five-hour flight to Perth. Oh wow. <laughs> okay, that's good. Pers- oh wow. Okay. That's yeah. good perspective. Yeah. 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 So we miss it. But now that we have a family and everything, it's nice being back in the U.S. and being a little closer right. to family. and Absolutely. Tackling public health problems here. As there are many. There uh, are, unfortunately. We're never out of, we wouldn't have careers if there were. I'd love to retire early. My neighbor's 45 and he's talking about retiring. And I'm like, how do we, I would love for the world to be just everybody's right. happy, healthy, and we can. Hang That's on, my husband's up. dream. I know. Now I was like, retiring maybe at 45. Could be 50 now. I'm like, I don't, maybe for you. No, for me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. There's still too much to do. There is. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, how did you decide specifically that you wanted to be an epidemiologist and focus on vaccine safety, vaccine education, and particularly for for perinatal a perinatal focus with your work? Was it something personal or something you were exposed to and you were good at it or you saw a gap for more work in that specific area? Yes. I I think how I came to where I am is really just following the things that you're passionate about, which is something I always, when I'm giving advice to early career folks or some of my students, I think that's really the best way to find your path, follow what you're really passionate about. And I came to the combination of vaccines and pregnancy a little bit by accident, but I feel like it was serendipity, maybe it was fate. I fell into epidemiology. I was pre-med and undergrad and realized. (laughs) No, I have my best friend was pre-med in college, changed her mind and then went into public health. And that's how I learned about public health because she ended up getting her MPH. And I was like, what is that? I yeah. never heard of public health. Like, I, what? Yeah, I, same. I was pre-med. And then I was like, I just don't think I'm ready for this huge to that. And I really struggled with organic chemistry. Organic chemistry. is That kills day. the pre-med dream. It, yeah. it did awesome and everything else. But anyway, so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I think maybe I'll, I, I heard about this MPH degree and I got some advice from our pre-med student association that, yeah, that might be a good idea to see how you go. And then you can always apply to med school after if you're still interested. And when I started specifically looking at different fields and I read about epidemiology, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you mean like outbreak and because contagion didn't exist at the time, but right. you know, like these sort of, <laughs> wow, like that sounds great. And then you mentioned we're geeks. I am a total data geek. I love, I actually took math classes in my undergrad for fun. Oh, I took differential oh, wow. equations for fun. I'm, okay. I used to be embarrassed of that. Now I'm semi-proud, <laughs> semi-proud. But I really loved math and I always knew I was pre-med. I always knew I wanted to help people. I wanted to make people, help people be healthy. And when I read about this epidemiology field where I was like, wait, you get to combine math with health. This sounds awesome. Plus hot zone and all those really um, amazing things. So I signed up and seriously, my whole two years at Emory, I, I, there was not one class I hated. I, lo- I I knew that I was in the right place. I loved everything that I studied. I was really passionate about everything that we were learning. So I knew I was in the right place. And then when I finished and I managed to work at CDC, I was like, this is great. And I always had an interest in maternal child health. It's always been an area that mm-hmm. I just think is really important. And, and I can't really link it to an event or anything. I just, it's, it's been at my core, I think always. So when I did my MPH, my advisor was Dr. Carol Hogue, who is one of the greats in reproductive health. And I got to do some research on contraceptive use. So I always knew I wanted to do maternal child health. 
my first job was in smoking. So I got to do a little bit of tobacco use and, and pregnancy and things like that. And then the pan that our last pandemic hit in yeah, 2009. Yeah, yeah. And immediately they were like, we, we need help. This is a lot. And I was right, at CDC. Yeah. So I was able to volunteer for the emergency operations center. So I got to help the epidemiology response team do case tracing and managing all the case data that was coming in. And that was really cool. I, it really sparked something in me. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I love what I'm doing. I love, I, I could do, I could work in a variety of things in public health, but just, I don't know. It was just so exciting. And the fact that infectious diseases are things that, you know, we can't prevent all of them, but there are a huge chunk of infectious diseases that we have the ability to prevent through immunization. So it just sparked something in me. I knew I wanted to sidestep into infectious diseases. So that was around the time we moved to Australia. I started doing a university of Western Australia has a very cool program that I don't know many other parts of the world that have them. So they actually do a master's of infectious diseases where you get to learn like the whole spectrum. Yeah. It was a very cool. I was so excited to get into that program. So you learn, I learned how to do a PCR. I learned how to do essays. So I know, don't ask me to do it. Nobody would hire me to, <laughs> to do bench work now. But, but, but I, yeah, I learned like the, the hard way of how to do PCRs and tagging, how to work in a hood, how to oh detect. The, like, so that was really cool. But then you also get to learn the epi, which I was a lot more comfortable right. with. So I, it really opened up my understanding of infectious, all the different uh, disciplines that you need for infectious disease work. And then I, I went, I carried on into my PhD and I got to work with the department of health and I'm interested. So this is why I feel like maybe it's all serendipitous or fate or whatever you want to call it, because I actually really wanted to get into Murray Valley encephalitis, which is a very uncommon, but very severe mosquito borne disease. I was fascinated by it for some reason. Yeah. But there's five cases in all of Western Australia oh, per year. Okay. My super, and my supervisor, um, Dr. Paul Eckler, who has been, he's an amazing mentor, fantastic global public health expert and epidemiologist, has done some crazy field work and now works a lot for WHO and Go on. So anyways, I sat down with him. I knew I wanted to do my PhD with him. And he's, he makes fun of me now. He's like, yeah, I don't know how much work you'd be doing now on Murray Valley and Kephalitis Epi, but he said, so I don't think that's a viable PhD, but I really want somebody to evaluate our, our influenza vaccine program in, for pregnant uh, people. And uh, I was, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. Like I, I've had my interest sparked on influenza. I really want to work in vaccines. And it was bringing me back to that maternal child health. And then here we are today, <laughs> 16 years later, I got to do a lot of really fun work in Western Australia doing, so I did some linkage of their data sets to generate some data looking at the safety and the effectiveness of flu vaccine and pregnancy. And then I also got to set up, you mentioned in my bio, I got to set up, uh, so this was before we had Be Safe and all these things that now we have, like this was back in t- 2012, 11 years ago back before SMS really took off or text messaging really took off and developed, I don't want to say the first because I'm sure somebody else did it. I think, I think Melissa Stockwell had already done work in the US, but it was the first in Australia. It was the first in Australia, the first SMS-based system to follow up pregnant people who've been recently immunized. And it was really a very cool experience. So we were following people up within... 36 hours of getting their vaccine or within a week after getting their vaccine and then asking them, uh, collecting information on any reactions they may have had. But what was really cool about it was how fast these systems can move because we were able to feed this information back to to healthcare providers and to the public like in real time. So within the first few weeks, uh, we actually worked it out. Within a month of rolling out flu vaccines, we could actually say, "This this is your chances of having our reaction, we haven't detected anything, no severe um, adverse events. And that was really important, I think, for supporting vaccine confidence early in the the seasonal vaccine rollout. Yeah. And that was, yeah, everyone's doing texts now, but that wasn't the case at that time. Yes. I think it's nice to see how those systems have really developed. So now there's a national system in Australia and we saw VSAFE was, I think it 
big, a huge success here in the U.S. for being able to follow up COVID vaccines in real time. So I think, yeah, it's old news now, but yeah, in 2012, it was, it was not easy. It was a lot, it was a lot of man, like literally at some point, like things wouldn't work and you'd have to manually text people. So it, we definitely did not have it, the highest tech at that time. I'm sure the systems are seamless now. But. Right. Oh my gosh. I love, I love it. I love it. And I've had the chance to work on a, a vaccine studies as well and the HPV vaccine and when the v- vaccine first came out and uh, and that was tough because no one was really no one was really studying the HPV vaccine and you're working with yeah girls of color and their parents and educating the parents about why the vaccine was important mm-hmm. but, but that was right when the vaccine came out and then talking to people about what their concerns were about vaccine and still super important today hpv vaccine we need we still need more work there yeah i can tell i'm sure one of the it was interesting we had a a program that was in philly and that was mostly american black girls and their parents and then we had a rural partner i won't say the name but it was somewhere in pennsylvania and it was a mostly white parents, white, and they didn't want to have our program that we developed, the intervention that we developed, which actually was effective in getting a significant amount of the girls to complete the vaccine. And that was from data because we tracked them through the registry at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So we were able to get actual numbers of who was getting the vaccine. So it wasn't self-report data. But this other yeah or organization, they said, these parents said that their children didn't have sex. And if we pushed the program about the HPV vaccine, then we would be pushing their kids to then want to have sex. So they said, we can take information about the vaccine by itself, but we don't want anything related to using condoms in addition to the HPV vaccine. So we really had to water down the, pro- the program itself because these, par- these particular parents felt like it would be encouraging their teens to have sex. Wow, that's and really... This was what, like 20, 2000, 2009, maybe a little before that. Yeah, that's yeah. really disappointing because it, and it, I think it speaks to the misperceptions and myths of vaccines because that's a really common right. myth yeah, about that. Which I know, wanted us, so maybe this, I wanted us to talk about that anyway. <laughs> so maybe this is a good, yeah, good segue. And, and you're the real expert in this area from your work. Yeah. What do you feel are the main kind of the main barriers? I think one for vaccines, period. But then when we think about, pregnant women specifically. What are some of the main myths? Yeah, so it's a really interesting space. I think I'll start with, I I think pregnancy is not a time that until much more recently we've viewed as a time where you'd be getting vaccines. So we know what really was a game changer was that last pandemic in 2009. It's it's eerie how we see it repeated with COVID, Um, but it's not that surprising because we know when you're pregnant, your immune system functions a bit differently. Your You respond really well to vaccines, but your response to viruses and things like that can be really suppressed because your body's dealing with a lot and you have a growing, the growing baby and everything. So there's a lot going on. And we know that pre- pregnant individuals do tend to get more sick with respiratory viruses. Yes. And we definitely well. saw that in the last pandemic in 2009. So even though they make up a small percentage of the population, I think at the end of the day, they showed um, pregnant individuals made up 5% of all deaths during the H1N1 pandemic, and they were much more likely to be hospitalized. Same thing that we're seeing now with uh, COVID, unfortunately. And then, so we definitely want to protect pregnant people during, against these these severe respiratory infections. So that covers flu, that covers COVID. But there's another reason why we want to give the vaccine during pregnancy. And that's because pregnancy is so cool. So you're actually passing 
positive things to the baby during pregnancy. So antibodies are actually going to cross the placenta to the baby. And this is such an awesome process that the baby actually has more antibodies than you by the time the baby's born. So they have all these antibodies in them that they're getting. So you get the vaccine, you produce the antibodies, they cross the placenta to the baby. And then the baby's born with protection immediately from day one. Those antibodies, unfortunately, don't stick around forever, but they'll, we, we have good data to show that they stick around long enough so that by the time the baby's old enough to get their first vaccines, they're protected against, um, against these particular diseases. So that covers flu and COVID, but that's the reason why we really give Tdap or pertussis vaccine because you create the antibodies in your late second tri uh, trimester, early third trimester, pass it to the baby, and then baby's protected against whooping cough um, until they get their first vaccines at, at two months of age. And I think we're going to see an RSV vaccine as well to keep babies from getting. Yeah, I think that might happen. My, my son, Gavin, got RSV. Oh, he was six months. Yeah. Daycare. I'm pretty sure he got it from daycare. And, but he ended up being at my current job, Children's Hospital Philadelphia for a week. Oh. And oh. They treated, they took, they just took such great care of him, but it was so scary. It was so scary. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's like, it was one of my, when we had the really bad RSV outbreak here in Orange County, it was yeah. one of my like worst fears. So all, almost all children get RSV by the time they're two years old. Yeah. At some point. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. But young children are just more likely to get, you know, to end up in hospital and we want to keep that from happening. And Winning, this is, yes. yeah, this is what I'm saying. Vaccines. But this is why so I love working important. in this space. Like we can actually keep babies from going to hospital. And in the case of whooping cough, where, you know, it's so severe that the baby could die, like we could actually keep children from dying at a really young age. So that's why we give the vaccines. But I think we didn't really see a lot of, and we're starting to see more vaccines come out. So I mentioned, I think we're going to have an RSV, the, the clinical trial data look good. FDA is going to discuss it and it's on the, board for the advisory committee of immunization practice to discuss whether or not they'll recommend it. So it looks like there's going to be an RSV vaccine oh that'd be I given so. in pregnancy, mm -hmm. but we'll see. It's not, it's right, not like decided right. yet, but so we have all these vaccines coming out, but this isn't something that we have. I, I, I wouldn't say until that last pandemic in 2009, where people were very scared of so all these stories about pregnant people in hospital dying with uh, H1N1 or swine flu. And um, people were scared and it, it did result in a large increase in vaccination. So I know in Australia, we went from vaccinating something between five and 9% to vaccinating, not, it didn't go up like a huge amount, but 30, 30 to 35%. That's a big jump for within good. a year. Yeah. That's a big yeah. jump. And since the pandemic, we have seen these slow increases and in, it's becoming more and more people are more and more aware, I think, that they need to get the flu vaccine yeah, while they're pregnant. So right. we do continue to see these increases. But so I think there's a little bit of, wow, I didn't know that's something that we do. And I know we actually did try some interventions in Australia, and that was some of the feedback that we got. We would send them reminders to get vaccinated, and the pregnant participants would tell us, oh, I thought that was a mistake. Like, surely you're not telling me <laughs> that I should get a vaccine while I'm pregnant. But I think that's changing. I think the awareness that we should, that there are vaccines that we should get while we're pregnant is increasing. But there's also, pregnancy is also this really intense time. Like you get told a lot, don't drink, medic, you know, you have so to be really many careful. so can't do exactly. already. I found an article on the dying hair and I was like, what, really? Let me tell you something. <laughs> the first pregnancy, I listened to that. Second, I was like, I'm getting my hair cut. <laughs> I'm like, and that's why I look so much better post-delivery with my youngest, with Amari, because I had just got my hair colored two weeks prior. I, it didn't matter. <laughs> I'm, not I'm, sure. I'm not sure about the evidence on that. Now I, I have gray it. hair. So then I, I'm like, hair. I have to get my hair colored. <laughs> I had my hair done when I was pregnant and I didn't feel bad about it. <laughs> no. First, your first one, you listen to, and I had me as twins. So I, li I listened to almost everything. I need of to course. do everything that yeah. you weren't supposed to do. Yeah. But yeah. There's, you get so much information. Do this, don't do You're that. You're bombarded. And I think, 
Yeah. Don't Sometimes. take, don't take certain pain relievers. You can't take all oh, that's like all these things that are in normal. Sorry. I don't want to say normal outside of pregnancy. I think <laughs> when, I, when I was pregnant with Amari, I got something about somebody sent me something about not taking Tylenol because since he was a boy, I don't remember what it was, but something was more likely to happen to him if I took Tylenol while I was pregnant with him. So I didn't take Tylenol. Yeah, there's studies looking at acetaminophen use and yeah. birth outcomes. I still think it, there's still some question marks, but right, yeah, it's, it's a hard space. I will say that. And I'm a public health doctor, and you, t- it's so for <laughs> us. It's okay, if we're saying like this is a lot. No, and I feel like you get a lot of conflicting advice as well. So I remember I I actually ended up back in hospital two days after I had Cameron and they had to give me, I think it was hydrocodone. And I was like, but I'm breastfeeding. So isn't that bad? And then the pediatrician would say, don't breastfeed because you, you don't want to give the baby hydrocodone. Okay. And then, but then the the lactation consultant and the OB was like, oh no, you can totally breastfeed while you're on hydrocodone. Yeah, it's like, I'm like I have two different health professionals that are right. telling me different things. It's very, it can be, it, I think it can be very confusing because right. you get conflicting advice. Sometimes. Right. And they're not talking to each other and you're in yes. the middle and right. Yes. And I think, yeah, the, I, this is only a personal experience, but I feel like the advice you get from pediatricians is very different to the advice you get from somebody that's a maternal health provider because they are coming at it from different angles. One's, right. one's very focused on the, the pediatric patient and one's very focused on on you as the maternal. And the mother. Yeah. Right. So I feel like it can be a very confusing space. We get that feedback a lot. I'm just not sure. I haven't, you know, I, I don't know. It's especially with COVID that was, a problem. I just don't know. I don't know enough about the vaccine. We don't have enough like experience. I don't feel comfortable taking the vaccine, which I think is a completely valid concern. We didn't. So this has been a a longstanding problem for vaccines and pregnancy that we tend to say pregnant people are a vulnerable group. We don't want to include them in these clinical trials. We don't want to experimental vaccines. But what ends up happening, it's like a double-edged sword. What ends up happening is then you got a vaccine, you have a group that's really having these severe adverse outcomes after getting COVID and you have no data to support the, no clinical trial data to support safety. And you're asking people to take it based on, we don't believe there's going to be any harm. And right. And there, there doesn't, there wasn't, but still that's a pretty big leap. I think that you're asking people to take. And I know for healthcare professionals, that was, uh, unfortunately, a lot of that got put on them. So I think that's really unfortunate and something that is going to change. I, I think it should have changed from the 2009 pandemic because we were in the same boat. Right. We, they needed to take a pandemic vaccine. and But at least we had a lot of experience with flu vaccines. And this is, COVID is a, a new vaccine. So I'm hoping that's going to change that we do. Pfizer and some other manufacturers did plan some vaccine trials, but they were too late. You know, it, uh, it, these trials take a very long time to do like with the RSV yes. trial. Oh my goodness. Like I would, I, some of my friends are site and leads for that trial and just listening to their experience with recruiting people for that trial, oh, yeah, they take a long time to do. And I think in emergency settings, it's really hard, but I'm hoping we can, I don't know, come together and figure out how to get that clinical trial data in a timely right. way so that we have early evidence for people who are pregnant and need that data to make decisions. The, but getting to your like myths and why, so, so that's part of it. We, when we, I've done, we've done a lot of work talking to people about various Tdap, flu, COVID. Yes. It's yeah. pretty consistent. If you're worried about if the vaccine's not safe, you're much more likely to not get it. I think that's common sense. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is it seems to be way more about the baby than the mothers. You're not so worried about you getting sick or you having a reaction. You're worried about anything happening to the baby. And I think one thing that we, I had, actually, I can't remember the expert that I was speaking to about this, but they made such a great point. I don't think we do a good enough job explaining what actually happens in pregnancy when you get the vaccine. So I mentioned like the antibodies cross. But nothing in the vaccine actually cross. So like you're getting that vaccine and all the things that are in the vaccine, the things to keep it from preserving it, 
the antigen, oh, none of that crosses the placenta. It's just those antibodies that are good for the baby. The vaccine's not actually crossing. And I don't think we communicate that very well to people. So of course you're going to be concerned, but I'm taking a medication. When is that going to harm the baby? So there's that. I think having the understanding that the vaccine is going to, so again, don't seem to care if the vaccine is going to protect them. But when you tell people it's going to protect the baby, that's a major selling point. So in a previous study that we did, yeah, 93% of people who said they got the vaccine while they were pregnant got it because they wanted to protect the baby, not because they wanted to protect themselves. Right. 93%. Yep. Yeah. 93%, almost 100% got it because they wanted to protect the baby. This was flu. And then I think but the biggest and most consistent factor that we identify is that healthcare providers are not always recommending it. So we found that when a provider, when your provider recommends it, you are as much as 12 times more likely to get the vaccine. Whoa. Times more likely to get a vaccine if your healthcare provider provider recommends it. That's key. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that's a space that we are, that uh, people are doing a lot of work on. That makes sense because I can tell you that when we created the, the intervention program for the HPV vaccine, again, 2009, one of the things we asked when we did focus groups and we asked the teens separately and we asked the parents separately, whose opinion matters about you getting this vaccine, the HPV vaccine, both said, the teens said in their own groups, my doctor. Mm. The parents said the pediatrician. And so these are two separate groups saying the same thing. And so what we ended up doing was putting a healthcare provider communication module in the intervention for the teens and for the parents so they could learn how to communicate with their doctor about the vaccine. That's great. So people think, I'm like, in these teens, they said my what my doctor says matters. And these were... Well, to to 16-year-olds, to yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that having that voice and advice and a conversation about the vaccine is really important. And I think in the case of pregnancy, it can really depend on where you're getting your care. So I can share right. one of my own stories as well. So as a vaccine person, I was pretty annoyed at my OB and I had a primary care provider and an OB I was seeing in Texas where I started my pregnancy. Not one person talked to me about vaccination, not one. Multiple health providers that could have mentioned it to me. And I made, okay, so I had to go to my pharmacy. You can also get your vaccine from a pharmacy, which is great in the, in the U S I went to my pharmacist and I said, I'm in my first trimester. I'd really like my flu vaccine because it's, you know, flu season's about to hit. My pharmacist was over the moon, said, I love vaccinating pregnant people. So she gave me my vaccine. And then I made sure the next time I went to my back to my OB that I said, were you going to mention, not to throw my OB under the bus, that's terrible. But, <laughs> but I was just a little disappointed. I was right, like, right. Of all, could you, I wanted her to know that I had to go to my pharmacist and that she should be telling her patients to get the vaccine. And the response I got was pretty, it was, yeah, you can get the flu vaccine if you want to get it. And I was like, no, don't tell me that. Say, you should be getting it because I don't want you to get flu. And I want you to have those antibodies. I want you to be protected in the flu season. And I want the baby to have protection too. So it was just, it was not very strong. And then I moved to California when I was in my second trimester. Uh-huh. And it was like polar, like night and night day. And day. Yeah. I had my intake and she's so at 28 weeks. Yeah. You're going to be getting your, oh, she didn't say you're going to be getting it, but she's, that's when you're supposed to get your Tdap dose. So we're going to do it right here on that, on your on appointment that day. Yep. See? And I'm like, great. And she's like, did you get your flu vaccine? Cause you haven't, if you haven't, we're going to get it. It's a little late in the season, but you'll get it now. And I'm like, don't worry. I took care of it. But it was just, it was interesting to see like how mm-hmm. very different your yeah. different providers can be in terms of recommending it or not recommending it. And it can be a really, it is a very important factor in whether people get the vaccine. Would you recommend for women that are pregnant to advocate for themselves if they feel that 
these conversations are not coming up during their visits that they're OB, the OBGYN? Yes, 100%. We know yeah. this is a major yeah. issue. I've heard you speak previously, and I know you've given this very excellent advice. Yeah, we. I think we need to be our own advocates. And I think that's why it is really important to work at this from the to provide education to health providers and try and enhance those conversations between providers and their patients. But I think we also need to be working from the patient level and letting people increasing awareness and education around vaccines, how it can support your health, providing that information that people want to make them feel better about whatever they decide if they're going to get the vaccine or not, but at least giving them that information and yeah, advocating for yourself, have that conversation like I had to do. So I didn't get offered the vaccine, but I knew I should have it. So I went and spoke to somebody else and they gave it to me. That is exactly what I think. If you're in a setting where they're not recommending it, ask for it, talk about it, advocate for yourself. I love that. I love that. Have you found that, I would say with the, maybe the COVID vaccine itself and I guess barriers and and feelings about it. Did you yourself, were there any differences between kind of women's feelings about the vaccine, depending on their race or ethnic background, or was it the same feeling overall, the same kind of concerns regardless? I think from what I've seen, the concerns are similar. So it's still the concerns about safety. We do see differences though, in terms of getting that recommendation. So we have seen people who get their care from, so like I did some work in Australia where we found if you got most of your prenatal care from a private midwife or from a general practitioner, that you were less likely to be recommended a vaccine compared to somebody seeing an obstetrician, a private obstetrician. And I think we see that in the U S as well, that depending on what kind of healthcare setting you're in, you may be more or less likely to be recommended a vaccine. And we also see that by race and ethnicity. So we do see that black mothers, Hispanic mothers, they are less likely to be recommended the vaccine than white. And that likely translates to lower vaccination rates are definitely lower. And we're currently doing some work to look at all all currently recommended vaccines based on the payment system that you're in, if you're privately insured versus if you're in the Medicaid system and um, not to depress anybody, but I think it's very disappointing to see that in the Medicaid population, uptake of these recommended vaccines that have the potential to protect you and your baby are almost half the rate of the privately insured uh, population. So there's definitely visible disparities. Part of it's linked to healthcare provider, being less likely to get that healthcare provider recommendation. Right. Let's hold. Can we pause for one second? Mm -hmm. I have to let the dog out. I'm just (laughs) going to press pause. Hold on one second. Here we go. Yay. All right. Awesome. (laughs) So with that knowledge, how can women and women of color and women in different socioeconomic backgrounds, what do you recommend that that they can do themselves to make sure that they can get the, the vaccines that they, they need to get? Yes, yeah, so I think it's important to just going back to that self-advocacy piece, feeling like they can if you don't like, if you don't feel like you're getting the information you need from your provider, change provider, find the one that that is going to work with you and is going to talk to you about the things that you think you need during your pregnancy. And if you're unhappy with the information that you're getting on vaccines, go somewhere else, but make sure you advocate for yourself that if you want that vaccine, you can get it. And there's multiple places you can go. It doesn't even just have to be your prenatal care provider, you can go to your primary care provider and ask, and they should be offering you the vaccine. You can go to, I, sorry, I just really love that we can get a vaccine in a pharmacy here. Like we need to make vaccines easy. Parenthood is such a crazy time. It's crazy while you're pregnant. It's crazy after you're pregnant. 
the easier we can make vaccines, the better. So even being able to walk into your, while you're grocery shopping and step over to the pharmacist and say, Hey, I'm pregnant. Can I get my flu vaccine? I'm not sure I might need my COVID vaccine too. But having that feeling like you can have that conversation with whoever that might be that you trust the most, have that conversation and speak up for yourself. I love that. I love that. That's so important. So one question that I have for you that I ask to everyone on my show is, why do you think maternal health is an emergency in this country? Yeah, I saw that question. I was like, whew, <laughs> that is a hard one. That is a hard one. It's hard. I think it's just, it's not hard. It's just very complex because I think there's a lot of different issues. So one is the fact that health in general, I think, is an emergency in this country. And then pregnancy is this time where things just amplify. So if you were in a if you were in a place where maybe health wasn't the best before you became pregnant, now that you're pregnant, that just really exponentially increases as a problem. So things get, things are maybe a small problem before you're pregnant. Now you're pregnant and this is a big problem, a very big problem. And it's affecting not just you, it's also affecting the baby. So I think the fact that we are not necessarily fantastic at keeping people healthy all the way from birth through adulthood, that's a pre-existing problem that becomes even bigger during pregnancy. And then I think yeah, we also yeah. have our health system is having lived outside of the US health system and seeing a very different one in Australia. Our health system is funky. There are some, there are a lot of, sorry, not some, there's a lot of pinch points. And yeah, yeah. we don't always, we don't always know. You don't always know that you're not in a great, that you're not seeing a great provider you don't always know that you're not getting the best care. So I think that's a really big problem because you might think that you're getting fantastic prenatal care. You're following, you're doing right. whatever they say. But it's, but just, it's just average and you don't know. Yeah. And they're not. Or and less than average. Yeah, yeah. And there's certain things that are not being done that are not picking up problems that are going to become major when you get closer to delivery. So I think that's, the system is also a bit of a, a problem. And then I think we are doing better now at paying attention to it. I think we know it's a frustrating situation because I keep seeing these articles about how maternal mortality is on the rise again, yeah. maternal yes. mortality is right. on the rise again. And we just don't seem to be finding this. How, how do we address this? And I think we're in this, I don't know, we, we need to do something different uh, clearly because the rates are just not going in the direction that we want them to go. And uh, to be honest, I used to be embarrassed to be an American abroad at conferences in Australia and New Zealand because there would be an American there and they would present data on, so just stepping aside from mothers and looking at infant and perinatal deaths, they would present the data. And I'm not kidding. At one uh, conference, at the big perinatal conference, somebody in the audience raised their hand and they asked if that if the statistics were right. Because they said that's so high yeah. and you're a high income country. I'm not even kidding. I'm not making this up. And the speaker said, yeah, in the U.S., we unfortunately have some of the high, the highest maternal mortality rate, the highest perinatal mortality rate for a high income country. And it's, un it's really unacceptable. So I feel like we really need a we need more attention. We need more funding. We need more research. We need more community engagement. We need to listen more. There's a lot of, there's a laundry list of things that we need to do, but we really need to change and shift right. how we're addressing this because we're going in the wrong direction. And that's why I started this, this show because exactly all the things that you just, all the things you just said, and there's so much more work that we have to do. Ah, oh, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that. But yeah, I, th I also find in other countries, yeah, when I go to conferences, I think people are more, they're more comfortable with being candid and transparent. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> Can you yeah, explain that's true. this for me? That's true. <laughs> I, I have found that to be true as well. Oh, oh you, you all are very comfortable. <laughs> we don't talk to each other like that in the <laughs> U.S. Although, yeah, it's the same data. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, we that's know. True. Yeah. 
So I That's thought true. before we, we leave, and I, I see this as the first time of hopefully many conversations we'll have on the show, that we could talk or you could talk a little bit about the program, your new research grant that I'm um, happy that I'm going to be helping you in, you know, in some capacity. So I thought maybe you could talk um, a little about it here on this episode before you go. Yeah, I'm excited to. We've done a little uh, sidestep into adolescence, which has been really fun and a very important. Adolescents are going to be, they're not too far from young adulthood, right. early par- yeah, from parenthood. Not. They are a very important group. And it's a really interesting stage because I think when you're under 12-ish, there's your parents are making all the decisions. But that 12 to 17 age point is really interesting because you're starting to develop your independence. Uh, you're starting to identify your own, have your own perceptions and beliefs around things like vaccines and other medical yeah, uh, and issues right. and, and health and your health. Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're starting to take on a little more ownership of your own health. So we identified this as a population group that I've been a, a researcher at different research institutions. One was a, a pediatric one. And th- we talked about this all the time about how teens just get left out a lot. And I, I'm sure you guys have found that at yes, CHOP and yeah. the Center for yeah, Teen Parents. Yeah. yeah. They, we, we tend to focus on the little kids and then we kind of skip to adults. So, and Even like the older, y- um, younger, well, older adolescents or younger adults. Yes. Yeah. But teens get left out. And we've seen this emerging as a really important issue with COVID because there are teens that want to get vaccinated, but their their parents are not happy. And so there's this question of, uh-huh. can you allow a teen to consent themselves or some states that they'll allow it as long as the teen can show that they understand the risks and the benefits? So it's a really big question mark and very important. So we managed to get this grant from NIH and we were, I was super stoked that you, Jill, wanted to help on this. We've already like, learned. Ooh, this is my jam. It's like teens and vaccines. <laughs> yeah, we, what again i feel like this is fate serendipity whatever i think i cold called you guys you did yeah and i was like you guys have a center for teen parent communication which seems like and i was like emailing me (laughs) (laughs) no it's great we've already done we've already learned a lot from your previous hpv work and we're really grateful for your partnership and also the contributions by dr miller Shout out, Dr. Victoria Miller. Yeah. So, so anyways, the goal of this project is to look at, we're really interested in trying to better understand how teens are either getting vaccinated or not vaccinated. And we're investigating this interface between teens and their parents. And it's been really interesting. So we're going to be doing a really big national survey that's going to go out in August where we're going to have over 750 teens and parents completing this survey. And we can actually model who the major influencer is. Is it the parent? Is it the teen? Is it 50-50? But what exactly. we've, yeah, what we've done so, and we want to use this to try and help support adolescent vaccine decision-making. But uh, what we've done so far is we've spoken to some teens and some parents. We've done some interviews with them and that's been with your help, Jill. And yeah, it's been really interesting hearing I, I, I just think the... Yeah, this is new. So you got to hear, hear from their voices and their perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, it's been... So the teens are, you know, some of them are really happy to talk. Some of them are like, ah, I do whatever my mom tells me to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Yeah, that's normal. <clears throat> Cameron, yeah. my son, <laughs> you better be listening to this. <laughs> I do whatever my mom... <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's not going to, he's not going to do anything I tell him to do. And that's not going to (laughs) happen. Exactly. But so I have a feeling it's going to be, it's going to really depend on, there's going to be these different subgroups of teens. But what's been really nice is some of the parents have actually told us how much they like doing these interviews because some of them, we we wanted to talk to them separately, but some of them have been in the same room. Yeah. And just, just, which is, you know, totally fine. But the parent will actually usually come back and say, wow, I'm really glad you're doing this research. That was actually really interesting to hear what my teen said about, yeah, what they were, their, their recollection of when we talked about it and why we decided not to, or why we decided to do it. And we've actually had a few parents say just how much they liked 
doing this, that somebody was doing this study. And awesome. yeah. And then I when mean, you hear that, that's just, that is, a, for me, I always find that's a confirmation. And it is interesting with the HPV vaccine program, the parents were very happy that we were there and had this program and said, we, this is going to be your program. We want to hear from you. What do you need? What? And they were like, people don't really always ask us what we think or what we need. And yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's really sort of like going full circle back to why did you do this? Why did you yeah. get into this yeah. field? And I think it's experiences like that where you actually hear somebody telling you, I'm so glad you're doing this. Or I'm so glad you're documenting this. Or I'm so glad you're telling our story. I'm so glad you're trying to like address this problem. It just makes you feel good. And like what you're doing matters. Yeah, matter. and, yeah exactly. That's so I'm, I think we're going to learn a lot and we're definitely going to, I'm I'm really grateful to have you, Jill, and to... Oh, I'm my honor. <laughs> I think this is going to, I'm hoping we can take this beyond COVID important and vaccination rates are not great in teens. I think we're still at around 62%, something like that. It would be a lot better. Yeah, It could be a yeah. lot better. And, but I'm hoping we can take this and learn and continue to learn more, maybe revisit HPV. And I know you've already you've already learned a lot in the HPV space, but maybe we could continue to learn more and see how it compares to COVID and other vaccines right. that teens should be getting. So I think it's a really interesting space and we're going to learn a lot. We're, we're, we're still only in just coming out of year one. So. Year one, that's right. I can't wait. So maybe when, we, when you have some results, you can talk about it on the show. Yeah, we, we have two projects that are probably going to wrap up so that those early interviews and then huh. we just finished a systematic review which isn't always the sexiest thing no to it's talk not the about. sexiest public health thing <laughs> but, but it's important, important. <laughs> it's important exactly Wait, you said it right it's not the sexiest <laughs> thing not. that we do in our <laughs> <laughs> we did learn a lot so i could share with you we'll have a summary of that over the summer and essentially i'd be able to come and tell you these are what these are the reasons why teens are not getting COVID vaccine and these are reasons why they are. And I can also, I can tell you there's a lot there's that systematic review has been a yeah. challenging, cha- challenging to say the least. It's, there's a lot of data out there, but right. As to, opposed to a dearth of data or little data. Yeah. Which is yeah. a different problem, but, but yeah, we're learning a lot about why teens get a vaccine or why they don't. And it should come as no surprise that. that it's very different to what, the reasons why adults don't get the vaccine. Right. Completely Right. The role of why we research it. <laughs> we could talk about we could talk about this more. We could talk what, about this all day. But one thing that <laughs> that has been very interesting is just the role of your peer groups, which comes as no surprise from other things, the oh. alcohol use. But right. I actually did not think peer influence was going to be so strong with vaccines. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Oh, but it I, is. We had, if my friend got it, then that means it's okay. Oh, it's actually, there. I think there's some stigma there to not getting the vaccine. There are some teens oh. that are saying like their friends wouldn't hang out with them because they weren't vaccinated. And, and that was, yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's much more extreme than other. I don't see, I don't see teens ostracizing a friend because they didn't get the HPV vaccine. Flu. Yeah. COVID. Yeah, you're right. COVID Flu, has been what? a whole I'm pretty other... sure that's what most teens <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My kids sometimes have come home from school and said, oh, this person isn't vaccinated. Now I can't hang out with that person. Mm -hmm. So So that's been really that I think that's one of our early, really interesting findings is just how important your peer network is. And I wasn't expecting teens to like group themselves or ostracize people because of their vaccination status. But right. We've definitely seen that like across a couple of our participants. That's going to be a show by itself. That'll be our next show on maternal health and animal. Yeah. Take care of our teens. See see you all week. Public health geeks, we can talk about this stuff all (laughs) week. Yep. Definitely. But thank you, Annette, so much. And um, thank you to all the guests for tuning in this week. Dr. Reagan, can you let the listeners know 
how they can find or connect with you on social media or how they can find if they have a question about your research, however, whatever you want to share. Yeah, uh, a couple different places you can find me. So I'm on Twitter at Annette K. Regan. You can find me on LinkedIn at Dr. Annette Regan. And then I also have a personal website that I try to keep Your up. personal website is dope. And we'll make sure that this is on your on your description page. I try to keep it updated. Oh I, I don't always do a fantastic job, but I like it because I try to put summaries in there of what we found and what we're doing, I what we're working it. on right now. So that'd be another place if you want to just have a look at what we're working on. But yeah, a couple different places to find me on social media. Thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in to the show this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maternal Health 911. Please follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to DM me with your questions and thoughts or to share your infertility, fertility, and maternal health story. For more information on this podcast and your host, visit www.drjillbaker.com. Listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review it. It really helps the show and the feedback is welcome.